Thank you. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Emmaus Church community. My name is Nathan. So happy that you're here with us today. Excited to worship with you. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We'll hand one to you. We're going to be on page one of the Bible. Real easy to find. Genesis 1. We'll walk through a passage there. As part. I'm actually going to be in the whole Bible today. The whole Bible. One morning. But we're just going to, we're going to focus in on chapter 1 of Genesis 1. Or of Genesis um, so also grab a Bible, and if there's a basket underneath a seat because you've chosen an aisle spot, would you grab a basket and hand it down? That way, if uh, somebody's new today, if you'd like to fill out a card, give us your address, hand off a prayer request, offer a comment, all of these things, uh, you can put on these comment cards, and we'll collect those and spend some time with those at our staff meeting tomorrow. All right, well, last week we began a 12-week countdown to April 2nd, and in case you're a once-every-quarter kind of person coming to church, I want to make sure you get the message that we're going to be in the theater that we purchased downtown as of April 2nd. That'll be our first Sunday, which was 12 weeks from last. Yes, that's good news. That's good news. It's always worth it. You can share about that. So uh, just sharing sort of 12 days of Christmas kind of ideas we, as we step forward. Last week we shared that we're going to be meeting twice. We're going to start a second gathering as we move downtown. I explained why. It has to do with the growth that's happening in our community um, and the anticipated growth of being downtown. So we'll have a 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock starting our first Sunday downtown at the theater, which is April 2nd. Today is our 11th week out. 11 weeks away from moving today, and I want to share with you some really, um, something that we're excited about, which is growth in our, in our ministry to students. Um, we are excited about centering our ministry to junior high and high school students downtown at a public place for the first time in about 12 years. Traditionally, our church has held its youth ministries in homes, which is great in a lot of ways. There's some real advantages to that. But it's, it can be a little bit less accessible than a public place right in the heart of downtown. And so we're really excited about centering our youth ministries downtown. In addition to that, I want to just celebrate some additional volunteers that have joined um, the teams. Tristan and Anglin Baker have just joined our middle school ministry team. That team is called Ignite. That ministry is called Ignite. So uh, I saw Anglin earlier this morning. Anglin was running the sound in the back. Thank you, Trista and Anglin. We're really excited and uh, very confident about your influence on, uh, on our kids and, and grateful for That's a high calling, hanging out with 12-year-olds, let me tell you. So uh, been there and done that. I'm not doing it anymore. But uh, really appreciate Trista and Anglin's willingness to, to walk alongside kids in this really critical developmental stage. And then these are familiar faces, but this is exciting news that uh, Carlos and Robin Campis who have been uh, working with the middle schoolers for the last two and a half years, built really good relationships there, are now going to, uh, with the help of Anglin and Trista joining uh, Rick um, in uh, Ashy, thank you, Rick Ashy as our director of our middle school ministry. Now that frees up Carlos and Robin to go support the high school ministry. The Carpenters are still volunteering there. The Hennings are still volunteering there. So we've got this stacked team uh, ministering to high school students moving into this season. So again, Robin and Carlos, I haven't seen them yet today, but if you're, are they here today? And yes, there's Robin. Thank you so much, Robin, for your commitment to these kids. We're really grateful 
for your continued willingness to walk alongside these kids. And it's exciting because we've got a couple of, we've got some overlap happening now with the ministry happening at the Axiom and then the connection happening with our, with our ministry here to our high school kids. All right. Um, I think that's that. Oh, yeah, one more thing. Um, one of the, the overlap part is um, Axiom, which is the middle, which is the, <laughs> pray for your preacher today. I'm just so <laughs> tongue-tied. It's, a, it's astounding. So um, we have a youth center downtown called the Axiom. Our high school ministry is offering dinner there on Wednesday nights and inviting the kids to stay for dinner. That's what I'm trying to get out of my mouth. And so if you would like to support that, it's a huge um, blessing to the kids. I hear them talking about it. A lot of kids are staying, but it's a big deal for the leaders of the high school ministry to also provide a meal. So we need, we need 14 more meals before the end of school, before summer. We need 14 more meals. Pizza, you can cook something, you can give them a gift certificate, whatever. But if you're able to say, you know what, I, I just can't hang out with kids today. I just don't understand kids. But uh, you want to support it, then you can do this really simply by uh, letting one of us know, staff or one of the high school uh, volunteers know you can pr provide a meal. All right. All right. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together for just one more minute. I pray, Father, that uh, I thank you first that you're here with us and among us. I, I thank you that you love us. And I'm convinced that you want to communicate that well today. And I pray that you would enable me to, to speak clearly and with passion. And I ask for grace for each of us to open our hearts to something new, some new insight, some new perspective, or just maybe a new willingness to accept and hear a good old truth so that we could live differently and be restored. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to uh, welcome you to the second week of a series that I started last week called Six Practices to Restore All Things. The question that, is, that we're asking, the essential question is, how do we work for the restoration of all things? This is becoming increasingly the theme of our church as we move forward is restoration. We want to work for restoration. So the inherent question is, how do we do this? How do we work for this? And in this series, we're considering six practices, six specific things that we can do, six ways to restore or to repair what's broken. And it can be the things that are broken in your family, the things that are broken in your home. We can apply this to the things that are broken at school or in your work setting, uh, things that are broken in our community. This one, our church community, things that are broken in our, um, in our, in our work situations, things that are broken in our city, in our world. How do we restore these things? So as I mentioned last week, the clarity for the some of the verbiage of this series come from a good friend of mine from college, Dr. Greg Thompson, who uh, runs this organization called New City Commons. So I want to be sure to give him credit for the help and the clarity that he's helped, the, the work that he's done that has helped us. Each of these six practices is connected to a question. So last week, this is the question we asked. Where are we? Where are we? This is how we're beginning. Where are we? Where's life happening? What's our context? And, and the, the good stuff that's happening, the challenging stuff that's happening, um, the, the, the light and the darkness that is created by the light in some cases. And then the restorative practice that I asked you to consider last week was simply to engage your context, to be all there. Right? We can fight against our context. Uh, we could ditch our context. We could just try to abandon our context. We can just sort of lay over and sort of blend in with our context. Or we can do what I think Jesus did, which is um, engage the context. None of the previous three options would be a faithful faithfully Christian response, because it's not what Jesus did. But it, what he did is he engaged it. He was all there. He was all in. It's the doctrine of the incarnation, fully present here now in this place. So that's the first question. And the second question is this. 
What do we believe? What do we believe? So first, I look around and I try to answer the question, where am I? And this is a big, huge cosmic question, but this can really be powerful if you ask this question several times throughout the day. Where am I now? Well, now I'm at work. That's a context. Now I'm at home. That's a different context. Now I'm at that, I'm in a meeting with that really difficult per or whatever. Where, where am I? What's my context? And then we need to ask, what do I believe? What do I believe? Friends, this fuels, our, this fuels our behavior. It fuels our interaction, right? What do I believe? It might seem kind of silly for Christians to ask the question, what do we believe? But in fact, it's not a silly question. It's a really important question. I would, I would indicate that it is, or argue that it is a vitally important question. It is one of the most important questions you could ask. What do I believe? And as Christians, we need to revisit this all the time. We need to constantly go back. It's not like, oh, I read that once a long time ago, now I got it. We got to revisit our beliefs all of the time. Uh, and, and it can be a complicated question, frankly. What do I believe? It's complicated because, there's probably several reasons, but the one that comes to mind is it's complicated because there are seasons in the church's history. There are shadows in the church's history where our beliefs have been associated with harmful behavior, right? And so it can be a challenging thing to try to recover what we believe. I think about globally, and, and the example that's always given is like the sort of the, the low point of the church's history globally is the Crusades. Or maybe you think nationally, and you realize that, you know, there were Christians who were advocating from Scripture the, the institution of slavery in the 18th and 19th century, right, as a biblical precedent. You think personally, it's easy probably for you to think of people who have been hurt by the church, hurt by the beliefs of the church. It's not hard to imagine, not hard to think and remember, know of people, maybe some of you this morning been hurt by the church. It's critical for us to recognize, I think, and engage this difficult reality that people have been hurt by the church personally. I mean, without even trying, this community has been sort of characterized by folks who have been hurt by the church. And maybe this is like one more shot. And on a larger scale, there's this growing narrative in our culture that points to beliefs, especially organized systems of beliefs, or institutionalized beliefs, those are both bad words in our culture, as the root of all social problems, as the cause of all wars. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, maybe you haven't seen, I think you've seen this, I think it's probably pretty obvious, it, it shows up in our music. Like there was a John Mayer song recently, it was about 10 years ago already, by John Mayer, but called Belief, and he sings, what puts 100,000 children in the sand? Belief can, belief can. What puts a folded flag inside his mother's hand? Belief can. Belief can. Or you too, who I love, uh, sang the song Raised by Wolves a few years ago, and he sings blood in the house, blood on the street. The worst things in the world are justified by belief. I don't believe anymore, he sings. I don't believe anymore. It echoes this growing sentiment in our culture that belief is often... Uh, they are seen by many as more part of the problem than as part of the solution. More and more creeds or fixed or formalized statements of belief are seen as tools of hatred or as uh, objects that are used for public harm. I think we feel this. I think we hear this in different ways all of the time. We hear stuff like, well, the church really hurt my friend. 
or the church is really the problem in society, the church is the problem, and the political system is made more problematic because of the church. And we who are religious or who participate in structured forms of worship like this one this morning, we, I think, feel this growing current of disdain or contempt or suspicion. Many of us, many of us are, live in settings, whether it's at home or in our work, where the people that we spend a lot of time with are suspicious of what we believe or at least critical or, um, uh, of what we believe. And because we feel this, I think it's easy for us to slide into one of three really well-established ruts concerning our beliefs, ways of responding to our perception of what other people are thinking uh, of, about our beliefs. One way that we can respond to sort of the, the, the disdain for fixed systems or organized systems of belief is we can, we can uh, turn inward. And, and when we turn inward with our beliefs, then our creed becomes all about our own personal salvation. It becomes all about our personal peace, our personal comfort. I'm not going to talk about it publicly. It's just a personal thing for me, right? It has less and less to do with the public square, less and less to do with societal issues, almost nothing to do with politics because it's just I'm just turning inward with my beliefs. This is just a personal thing. Um, it's personal. It's private. I'm arguing this is a rut. This is a well-established rut we, sh- we want to stay away from it, but it's easy to fall into it. Another way, another rut that we can slip into is we turn outward with our creeds, outward with our belief, and now we kind of use our beliefs to compete against others or to, to, to show others how we're smarter than they are or how our beliefs are superior to theirs. We want to defeat them. With, ours, with our beliefs, we defeat theirs. This happens when we slam the door on a really complex issue by just quoting one verse and acting like, well, that's the end of the conversation. We drop some sort of trump card on a really vulnerable moment where we say something like, well, that's against my religion, which it might be, but it doesn't really reflect any kind of effort to sort of engage in the conversation, right? This is using your beliefs outwardly. This is like as a weapon, just like, bam, it's like just hitting them with it. When, when, when disagreement with you over belief means I don't like you anymore. We can't be in relationship with, with each other anymore. Uh, the purpose of our beliefs becomes showing how we're smarter, we're better than the other people with other beliefs. So one rut's turning inward, another rut's turning outward. And, and then a third rut, if, if we take, it's, it's, it's like the rut down the middle of the road. It's the safe route. It's doing nothing, essentially, which is becoming increasingly common. We just say, oh, whatever, whatever. <laughs> we just throw our hands up, whatever. We try to make it all sophisticated by using the word tolerant, and we don't even know what the word tolerant means. That's not being tolerant, right? That's just basically trying not to offend anybody, right? It's just whatever, whatever. Doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter what you believe, you know, it doesn't matter what I believe, whatever, whatever. It's easy to slide into these ruts, and that's why they're deep. It's easy to respond to formalized, fixed confessions of belief by turning inward, or by turning outward, or by being non-committal, totally non-committal, right? And here, friends, here's what's tragic about it when Christians fall into any of these three options. It's tragic because what we believe, we actually do believe something, first of all. We actually do believe something, and what we believe actually matters. What we believe actually does make a difference. So if we're going to work for the restoration of all things, within our context, we must recover our confession. We must recover our confession. Last week, I asked you to consider engaging your context. The restorative practice that I'm featuring on this morning is the practice of recovering our confession. So let's talk for a minute about what it is that Christians believe, all right? That'll be the focus this morning, what it is that we believe. What is it that we're trying to recover, uh, essentially? 
And I would say that in a word, we believe in love. In a word, that's our creed. That's our confession. We believe in love. From start to finish, the Christian message is a message of love. So let me just touch on a a variety of Christian doctrines that are on your notes page, and I want to show you how each of these doctrines is anchored in love. All right? So beginning right from the start, we believe in a God of love. The Christian understanding of God is that God is essentially a love relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit eternally existing in true, holy communion. So if you were to say, what is the nature of God, the Christian response to that question is, well, according to John 1, 4, God is love. Okay, very simple, way more to say about that, but essentially that's what we believe about who God is, which is really important. Secondly, we believe that love is the origin of all that exists. In other words, our understanding of creation is rooted in love. Let me take a little bit more time with this one because it's under such assault in so many ways. And it it matters so profoundly. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first page of the Bible. And I'll just just summarize the beginning for you. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 3, God says, Let there be light, and there was light. And then in verse 6, God says, let there be an expanse between the waters, and he calls that expanse sky. And then in verse 9, God says, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let there be dry ground. And so it was. And God calls the dry ground land, and he calls the water seas. And then in verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and to serve as signs to mark the days and the seasons and the years. And the sun and the moon and the stars are created. And then there's verse 20 where God says, let the water team with living creatures and let birds fly in the skies. And then in verse 24, God says, let the land produce living creatures. And so this is the Genesis account of the first six days or the first six periods of creation. And then at the end of verse 25, you see the value of what has happened. God says, God saw that it was good. Okay, God saw that all that he had created was good. This is important. Do you remember the last time you tasted something that was really good? Remember the last time? For me, it was last week, Sunday afternoon. We had a gift certificate to Zocalo's. My whole family went there. I ordered something I couldn't pronounce, and it was so good. It was so good. It was really good. So what did I do? What did I do? What is that? I said it was good. I did, I did that first. You're right. I didn't even think about that. I said it was good. I ate it. What else? I ate a lot of it. Come on now, people. You're loving people. I shared it. Absolutely. Carmen, you've got to taste this, right? This is a. What is this spice? And how do I say it in English? This is so. This is what we do. You see a sunset. You see a. You see something beautiful. A waterfall. The only way to improve on a good thing is to share it with somebody that you love that you have an interest in. I didn't go to the next table. I mean, I could have, I guess. But what what, what I did was I was like, to my kids, I was like, gosh, you guys got to try this. This is so good, right? This is what little kids do when they do something like, dad, come see. They want to share it with you. Come look at this. Dad, you got to taste this, right? This is what we do. You got to try this. 
Forever, it seems, that philosophers and theologians of different religions have wondered, why did God create? What's his motive? What, what, what can he possibly expect to get out of it? What's the reason? The next step is to dismantle the existence of God. So if they can dismantle a motive, they're in good position, right? But the simple answer offered by Christians throughout history to the question, why did God create, is simply the only way to improve on a good thing is to create someone to share it with. Right? So, and that is all about God's motivation being love. Right? The, his motive behind everything that he creates is love. Verse 25, God saw that it was good, and the very next sentence, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. As soon as he noticed or realized or declared it's good, the next motive in God's heart is to create something to share it with, which is what he does. God makes man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He gives them everything, puts everything under their control and stewardship. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It's very good at this point, right? So what do we believe about the origin of the world or the creation of the world? Christians believe that God created the world as an expression of love, that existence in and of itself Beautiful mountains, brand new babies, that life is literally a product of love. Where did life come from? The Christian answer is, it must have come from love. It must have come from love, right? Or here's a third question, a third doctrine. What is the purpose of life? To understand uh, the understanding of humanity from a Christian perspective is that we are created in love for love. We are created to be in a relationship specifically with God that is a relationship of love. Friends, we believe in love, okay? When we talk about recovering our confession, we're talking about returning to a deeply, uh, to a belief system that is deeply rooted in love. And we can just continue to click through the doctrines of the church and see how each one is rooted in love. If you've been a part of the Christian church for any amount of time, you've heard about the doctrine of sin. Sometimes we talk about brokenness. Sometimes we talk about selfishness. Whatever you want to put as the label of the fundamental problem in the world, the Christian, the biblical word for it is sin. Well, Christians believe that sin is the corruption of love. That's what it is, right? The perversion of a beautiful, others-focused, a giving motive, a sharing motive, a this-is-so-good-you-gotta-taste-this motive. When that gets twisted, that's sin. It's love broken. It's love that is twisted. That's what Christians believe is sin. Uh, Genesis reveals the corruption of love in, in the third chapter, right? You, you know the story. Adam and Eve distrust the word of God as loving, as his true motive for them is, I love you. He says, you can eat anything here. Just don't eat that fruit. And they distrust him, they eat the fruit, and brokenness happens. Sin enters the word into the world. Further corruption in the next chapter, Genesis 4, when jealousy drives brother not to love brother, but to kill brother. And then Christians also believe in the, so we believe that sin is the perversion or the corruption of love, but we also believe that the grand narrative of history could be understood as God's pursuit of love. It's a chase scene. The history of the world is a chase scene. And God is chasing us. He is pursuing us indefinitely with love. The prophets uh, relentlessly call Israel into a covenant. This is this unbreakable relationship. What's the covenant? God says, I will be your God. You'll be my people. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's the when, when we refer to the covenant, 
specifically the old covenant or the original covenant. There's a new covenant that we celebrate in, com in communion. But the original covenant is, I will be your God, you will be my people. Right? There's this relentless, undying pursuit of love, and it culminates in the incarnation, in God becoming one of us, born as a man, Jesus, into the world that he created, to live and die as one of us. For God so loved the world, this is why he did it, that he sent, gave his only son. Sometimes people say, well, what did God ever do for me? What did God ever do for me? Well, if Christians are recovering their confession, then what they're realizing is, well, God pursued you. He is pursuing you. He'll never stop pursuing you, for starters, right? That's what God has done for you. So the Christians believe in this fundamental problem addressed by this fundamental uh, pursuit. Problem is this per per perversion of love. The pursuit is this, this pursuit of love. And that's why our, our, our central symbol, the central Christian symbol, is a tool of first century Roman torture. Because on the cross, Christians believe that Jesus reordered this sin-sick, broken world by facing hatred with love. Who saw that coming, right? He reordered the way things go. Because the way things go is if you hit me, I hit you back. And if you hit me harder, I hit you harder. And, and Jesus reorders that whole process and faces hatred not with more hatred, but with love. Christians believe that in the incarnation, Jesus overcomes sin and death with love. We believe that in the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father, Jesus is advocating right now for all of us in love. We believe that the mission of the earth, that in Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church, Christ fills us with love in order to empower us to love. Right? And then we believe that the mission of the church as declared through the sermons in the book of Acts is that Christ is restoring all things to himself in love. And finally, Christians believe that in a final triumph of love, that in love, in the end, Jesus wins. In other words, our understanding of heaven or life after death is rooted not in our own accomplishments like most perspectives, like most belief systems, the Christian confession is that the afterlife is not rooted in your own accomplishments, right? It's all dependent upon Christ's accomplishment for you, which was all motivated by love. So that's our confession, right? The first word in the Bible essentially is there's a loving God who creates everything in love. And then the last image we're given in Scripture is the image of a wedding banquet, and the church is the bride. And so the, the story ends with love. From beginning to end, friends, our confession is a confession of love. Love is our creed. This is what we believe. Okay? So, what do we do with this? Next four weeks, I'm going to outline some really specific, focused ways that we can respond to what we believe. But for now, this morning, let me just quickly suggest three general responses to what we believe. Ways that, what, ways that our beliefs should motivate our action in the world. First, we've got to remember what we believe, right? We've got to remind ourselves what we believe. So this is the initial action, is an action of remembering. Uh, when, we come, this is, when we come to a challenging cultural situation, can you think of any recently? When we come to a challenging cultural situation, the first thing we should do is remember what we believe. That's the first thing we should do. We should remember what we believe. Um, in other words, we should look back in order, to look, in order to move forward faithfully. We look back 
so that we can faithfully move forward. We're living in an age of contradiction, of confusion. People are navigating this journey of life, and they're not sure where to look for direction anymore. There was once a time when people who were searching would look to the church as a place of shelter, as a place of peace, as a place of spiritual nourishment, physical nourishment. But as we said last week, our culture is still very much searching, but they are not looking for us. They're not looking for us. Perhaps one reason that they're not looking for us is because we ourselves seem to be so confused. There's so much confusion that still exists in the church. There seems to be a lot of confusion, in other words, about how to help the hurting without further enabling destructive behavior. Have you had this conversation? Do I hand that guy five bucks at the stop sign? Or does that just hurt him ultimately? Right? How do we care for people? How do I disagree with somebody without being perceived as being hateful towards that person? How do we have a faithful presence of love in our homes, in our workplaces, in our world? Sometimes it feels to me like we're trying to figure out new solutions to today's challenges instead of working to recover and to remember what the church has always believed. The Christian church has a long and powerful track record marked by starting church, starting, uh, starting hospitals, starting schools, engaging the poor, coming alongside the vulnerable, the young, the old. There are seasons in the history of the world where the only people who will bury the dead are the Christians. Right? There's a powerful track record being involved in civic roles with integrity. We don't need to reinvent our position as much as we need to faithfully recover our confession. Okay? And then we need to think and we need to act Christianly about how I engage this context right where I am today. Well, they totally reinvented themselves for this new reality that's never before happened in our culture. Well, we can do better than that. We can recover our confession and allow that to fuel our engagement. We need to remember and recover our creed, our beliefs, so that we can engage our culture in ways that are faithfully Christian. What does that mean? Motivated by love, sustained by love, with the triumph of love as our ultimate goal. It's love from start to finish. Okay. So first, recovering our confession means we remember what we believed. And second, recovering our confession means we got to reimagine our historic beliefs expressed in the present context. We've got to reimagine what this looks like now. Because our confession does not change, but our culture changes, our times change, technology changes, our contexts are always changing. So we need to reimagine ways to communicate the gospel in this context. And there's great precedent for this, even in the first 30 years of the church. Um, there are seven, you can read about the first 30 years of the history of the church in this book in the Bible called Acts. And in Acts, there are seven sermons. And in these sermons, there are some core uh, elements in every one of the sermons. For instance, the resurrection, they're always talking about it. A Christian sermon always talks about the resurrection of Christ in Acts. But there are other things that are, that are different. So even though there's some consistent elements in each, each of the sermons in Acts is a proclamation of the Christian confession contextualized to that specific place and time. So we, in other words, we see different Christians communicating the same core message in, to different groups, Jews or Greeks, in different ways. I'll give you three examples really fast. In Acts chapter 2, 
The Apostle Peter is declaring the gospel to this multinational crowd assembled around a religious feast. And what Peter does is he shows how the historic celebration of Passover and then first fruits points to and is fulfilled by Christ. And this method is effective in this context. Acts chapter 7, one of the original deacons of the church, a guy named Stephen, is called before the highest ruling council of the Jewish people. These are the most educated, the most rigid, the most religious people. What does Stephen do? He preaches the gospel, but he does it by recounting a 2,000-year-old history, quoting lots of Jewish scripture in order to communicate the gospel to this highly educated, hard-hearted, way too high and mighty on their own position crowd. It's a different method for a different context. In Acts 17, the apostle Paul preaches the gospel to a bunch of Greeks, not Jews, Greeks. How does he do that? He doesn't even quote scripture. He quotes their own poets. It's really amazing. And so he, he preaches the same message, but it's a totally different context. Therefore, it creates or demands a totally different method. So he reimagines, how can I communicate the same message into this new context in a way that is faithful? So we must reimagine the message for our context. We must remember our confession, and then we must contextualize the, the message. So being a faithful presence to love looks one way, a faithful presence of love, it looks one way in Sun City, doesn't it? How do I be a faithful presence of love to my neighbors in Sun City? It might look a little bit differently. How do I be a faithful presence of love? I just signed up for another baseball season. How am I going to be a faithful presence of love in Lincoln Little League baseball? How do you be a faithful presence of love at Lincoln High School? That's going to be different than being a faithful presence of love on the construction site. It's going to be different from being a faithful presence of love at the mom's group, right? Same core message, same core beliefs, same core confession of love, contextualized differently. We've had really some hard conversations, right, Eric? How do you be a faithful, uh, a faithful presence of love as a police officer, as somebody who is involved with, with this kind of response? How do you, how can you, is it possible that takes some real imaginative work, right? To imagine and love contextualized in a context that is so um, often volatile. How do you be a faithful presence of love at the Axiom Youth Center? How can you be a faithful presence of love in your house? This is different contexts, right? Same confession, love. It's just contextualized. So recovering our confession means first we need to remember what we believe. Second, we need to reimagine how to communicate that belief in our specific contexts. And then finally, I, I would encourage you, uh, the way we recover our confession is we get, we get after it. We start repairing stuff. We start doing some work, doing the restorative work, right? It's relatively easy, in other words, to do the work of remembering and reimagining from your most comfortable chair by your fireplace. It's relatively easy to do the work of remembering. I wonder what it would, in your home group, what would it look like if we decided to actually put into practice what Jesus said? What would it look like if we were to love our city? We're really good at this. We're really good at talking about it, right? Uh, we're not so good at getting after it and putting, putting uh, some action to our words. If all we do is, is ask the question and talk about it, then we fail to show up as a truly Christian witness. Uh, so we got to start putting stuff back together. we got to start working on it. Uh, we need to do the work of repair. We need to repair the perception of the church. Uh, 
and, and repair the broken reality of the culture. I'll wrap this up with two short stories, which I hope put some flesh on this. My office is across the hall from, the, the, both of these are going to be Axiom stories because I, I work right across the hall from the Axiom. It's our youth center. And, um, or I shouldn't say it's our youth center. It's the youth center that we support. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little secret. Are there a lot of Axiom kids here today? Any Axiom kids? A couple of you guys? So the hallway that everybody goes to have their heart-to-heart talks is right behind my bookshelf where I sit in my office. I can hear the whole thing. I can hear the whole thing. All right, so I got some really good axiom stories. Great stuff happening in that back hallway, let me tell you. So I'm sitting there working on one morning, and I, and I hear this, uh, this afternoon, I hear these, uh, this conversation happening in the hallway right behind me. I hear, I don't know who, it, I still don't know who it is. Adult voice. Adult voice says this. Uh, so, you know, talking, talking. Um, adult voice, uh, no, the, 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 the student voice says, um, oh yeah. I, sorry, I got lost in my own notes. Get the right voice, the right person. He makes a sweeping assumption, a sweeping assertion, just makes this big, broad statement that he's not religious because all religious people are judgmental and that just causes harm and division. That's what the kid says. I'm not religious because it just causes a bunch of problems, essentially. See, yeah, religion associated with the problem, not with the solution. And the adult voice says, oh, is that all religious people? And the kid says, yeah, it is. And then I hear the adult voice say, what about Christians? Yeah, I don't like Christians. Christians judge people. Oh. What about Carlos? Oh, well, pff, Carlos is cool. <laughs> That's what he says. Oh, well, what about, what about Chris? Chris is Christian. Yeah. Chris helped me out. Yeah. Carlos is Christian. Yeah, it's true. What about Angela? She's the lady that brings us dinner? Yeah. Yeah, she's a good lady. Yeah, she's a good lady. Yeah. Angela's Christian, you know that? Yeah. Really? Yeah. What's going on back there? What's going on in that hallway? It's like repairing work back there, right? Some restoration work's happening back there. That's what's happening. Right, a broken perception, maybe a broken reality, being addressed by some people who had engaged a real context and had recovered their confession. What's their confession? Love. And now they're putting flesh and bones on it, and it's, it's making a difference, right? It's causing somebody to go, oh, oh, yeah. And then one more story. We got a little bit of rain last week. Anybody get rain last week? <laughs> got some rain last week? One day, the water... The rain was so bad that the water was coming, literally coming down the inside of the south wall at the Axiom. Like you could, it looked like bleeding. Like my icons in my office were, were crying. They were all bleeding. <laughs> like water coming down. And uh, so um, that's where that south wall is where the TVs and the video game systems that they have in the Axiom are hooked up. So they all got wet. They had to pull them down. And it's pouring outside, so Carlos is anticipating this big crowd of kids coming. They nothing. they got to come to the Axiom, right? And he needs everything to be working. He needs pool table, game systems, everything. Everybody needs to be there. It all has to be working. And so he calls Jeff Jenkins, who serves on the board of our church. He's one of our board members here at Emmaus. And in an hour, in an hour, Jeff had the south wall reconstructed on the north wall, right? And so the kids come in. And they're, and they're playing games and they're having a good time like normal in the axiom on, on an afternoon. Now that might sound like just a really simple thing. Just a really simple thing. And it is. It is. Friends, most days that's what restoration looks like. It looks like really simple things. Okay? 
But it begins like this. You engage your context. What's your context? Well, today my context is there's a youth center which I support which is in need of help and it's raining outside. The good and the bad, that's my context. And then you recover your confession by being motivated by your beliefs. What do you believe? I believe I love people. I love people. I love these kids. So what does that look like today, right? Well, I'm going to fix some stuff at the Axiom. That's what I'm going to do today. Motivated by love. Friends, this is how broken things get restored. Okay? We can get really philosophical, really theological, really historical. We can use big words, but it's got to come down to stuff like this, right? Actually working for restoration, engaging our life, in our life, engaging practices of restoration. So God, have mercy on us as we attempt to join with him in his mission. Let's pray together. Grateful, Lord, for uh, the people in our own lives who have put it all together for us so that they entered into our context and they, they brought with them this confession of love and something they did or said or maybe just who they were day in and day out, it made an impact on us. It changed us. And I pray that that pattern of the church would continue in and through us, that we would pass it on to a whole nother group of people. Thank you for the opportunities that are before us. They are, uh, they're firing us up. We're excited about it. And we pray for grace to be fully engaged in what you are doing in and through us, and in this city and in this county and beyond. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.